Um, we're going to get into God's word today. Um, there's so much going on in the world. I'm so glad to hear that the conference office is um, doing something for uh, the island nation of Haiti. I've been to Haiti on mission trips before, on one mission trip before, and um, Haiti you know, has its struggles, but to this day, I don't think it's recovered from the earthquake it had uh, 11 or 12 years ago. And to have another one, um, pretty, pretty devastating. Um, but I will say this, the strongest Christians I've ever met, I met in Haiti, in a town called Ponsonde. Um, I was preaching Wednesday night. The church had no walls like a lot of our churches in the Caribbean don't. Um, and people were standing all the way out into the street. Um, and I'll never forget um, when um, they call them rah-rah bands. So it's like um, connected to voodoo. And um, because there was such a gathering um, and we were doing mission work, I guess they came to come after us. And the rah-rah bands come around, I guess, at Easter time. Um, to try and call us away because um, they were going to raise the dead, uh, the, the, this group. I'll never forget that the Haitian elder who came out began to say, don't go, don't go. And he began to explain to us what was going on. Yeah, like, you didn't have to worry. I wasn't going anywhere anyway. I mean, <laughs> and nobody knows me. I wasn't following anybody go anywhere. But um, it was powerful. Because we live Christian lives in America where we live behind a spiritual veil. In other words, the spiritual realm is not real to many of us because we don't have to see it. When I look at my grandmother, Olga, her life, the reason, one of the reasons she was such a devoted Christian coming from the island of Jamaica is because she had to deal with spiritual warfare in a very tangible way. The Obia ladies would actually attack my grandmother because she was a Bible-believing, Sabbath-keeping, Seventh-day Adventist. So she, 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 her walk with Christ was not some, as they say in Jamaica, dibby-dibby thing. It was not some weak or, 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 or faint thing. Her walk with God was real because her, her life depended on her relationship with God. It was her, it was her fortress and her defense and as we have pro uh, progressed in America, it's interesting. The devil has pulled the wool over our eyes by taking spiritualism and moving it into Hollywood where we can be told it's not real while at the same time indoctrinating us with it. So church, even as we go through our message today, understand that we are still in spiritual warfare. Our scripture reading as Donnie so eloquently read, it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read verses 16 and 17, and the scripture says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 17 says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye what? And be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. 
Our message this Sabbath is the fifth installment in our sanctuary series. It's called Into the, Ma- Into the Majestic. Into the Majestic. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. I ask once again, Lord, that you make me just a nail upon the wall, a rusty, sorry nail, Lord. But upon that nail, Lord, I ask that you hang a portrait of Jesus Christ. Let Eric Walsh not be seen or heard today. Instead, Father, let us hear a word from the throne room of grace. Is our prayer in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. So just to recap, for those who haven't been here, we've been studying the sanctuary um, as designed and described and even built in the book of Exodus. And we talked about this being the outer um, court out here and the and the, the quote-unquote walls of white linen, which represented Christ's purity. Um, and how, and, and as you came around, um, to the gate, the gate was rectangular. It was longer than it was high, which is different than when we talk about the door into the tabernacle. On a daily basis, there was a sin offering made where you'd have to come in through this door and the first piece of furniture you would see and the largest piece of furniture you would see was the brazen altar made of bronze. The, the, the key metal being um, copper. And when you came in here, this is where the daily sacrifice was made. It represents, antity, it represents um, typically the antitype of the cross of Jesus Christ. For it is on the altar of the cross that Christ gave his life for all of us. And all of the sacrifices done back then only pointed forward to what Jesus would do for us one day. From there, the next piece of furniture was the brazen laver, which was a which was a a a, 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 a pool of water. Um, the Bible does not give a dimension for it. Also made of of bronze, and here the priests would wash. It represents baptism and the new life that comes from baptism, but it also represents Christ's death, uh, not um, his burial, I should say, and his resurrection. And so here in the courtyard is represented the years and time of Jesus's ministry on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. We talk from there about the fact that you're not called to stay in the courtyard. We are called to be priests and to enter into the tabernacle. And so when you enter into the tabernacle, you would go through the door. And Jesus says, I am the door. The door, unlike the gate, is a perfect square. It's powerful because it represents the perfection of Christ and it is more narrow than the gate, meaning that although many will come through the gate, not as many will go through the door. But there's a process that happens as you go through. And of course, this shows it here and where we left off was at the door, but today we are going to talk about the tabernacle proper itself, about the very structure that was built and designed by God uh, as um, a, as an earthly replica, quote unquote, of the sanctuary that is in heaven. Now, to get there, I'll show you the, this piece, this this here, and I'll give you the dimensions and so forth later. But it's this building, or really this tent, that we're going to talk about today, and it was majestic. 
And it was majestic by design beyond our wildest dreams. I don't talk about this in the, in the, when I'm, when I've been presenting on this, but the men who, uh, uh, crafted, um, and designed and actually built, uh, the temple and its, uh, the sanctuary and its pieces were gifted by God as artists. These were probably the greatest works of art ever created and placed in the sanctuary. And they had incredible values we're going to talk about. But let's talk about this process of moving from the courtyard into the tabernacle. It's a process that we all must do. We talked about the door, but we've got to go through the door into the tabernacle at some point. And so the story I want to use to show that comes from the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 11. Elkanah, of course, is um, a famous um, well, maybe not so famous, Bible character. But verse, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 11 says, And Elkanah went to Ramah to his house. And the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli the priest. Now his child was who? Samuel. Samuel was the boy that was left um, with uh, Eli the priest to be raised in the house of God. The, the, I don't have time to get into the story, but his mother, Hannah, was barren. She couldn't have a child Elkanah had two wives, and the other wife teased her for being barren. In fact, if you read the prayer that she gives, um, it is a powerful prayer, one of the most powerful prayers in all of the Bible. So here's Eli is the priest. Verse 12 jumps right into our story. It says, now the sons of Eli, not Samuel, he was just there as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as someone to be raised up in the, in the temple, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Here it gets interesting right out of the gate. So the priest, the high priest, who is a direct descendant of Aaron. In fact, Eli is a descendant of the fourth son of Aaron because Nadab and Abihu, as we talked about before, the first two sons of Aaron were destroyed when they brought strange fire. Here now, Eli one of the descendants of Aaron, has two sons that are also problematic. The Bible says that they were sons of Belial. And Belial has double meaning. One, some argue that he was literally um, a demon that was worshipped. Uh, but also it means um, unlawful, uncontrolled. The scripture says in verse 12 that these two young men who were raised in the church, raised by the priest, didn't know God. <laughs> you can be raised in the church and never know God. The priest's custom with the people, I'm going to give, the Bible gives an example of the kind of shenanigans these guys are up to. 1 Samuel 2 and verse 13 says, And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was in seething with a flesh hook of the of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh unto all the Israelites that came thither. This was not what was supposed to happen. First of all, all the fat had to be cooked off. You weren't supposed to eat the fat. It had to be cooked off. They weren't supposed to take all of this from them. In fact, they were enriching themselves by basically stealing the offerings that the children of Israel were bringing in. This is what Eli's sons were doing. 
And also before they burnt the fat, the priest servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, sacrifice, give flesh to roast for the priest. For he will have, he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw. He's like, don't even bother cooking it. Give him the raw flesh. Watch this. And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently and then take as much as thy soul desires. So some of the people say, listen, at least follow the law and burn the fat off. Then you can take as much as you want. I don't care. But don't take it in a condition that is unclean. Watch this. If a man said that, then he would answer him. This is what the servant of the two two sons of Eli would say. Nay, but thou shalt give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Violence. These two, two gangster priest sons they had here. Willing to take it by force. So you see that their sins start to heap up. The first one is they have a problem with, 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 with greed, appetite, wanting to take what's not theirs. They have a problem around violence because if you didn't do what they said, they would actually take things by force. Now watch this. Verse 17 says, Wherefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. It got to the point where people didn't like coming to the temple, to the church, because of how terribly Eli's sons behaved. Then they give you this contrast. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child girded with a linen ephod. We talked about the importance of linen last week. And the Lord visited Hannah so that the, she conceived and bare three sons and two daughters, and the child Samuel grew before the Lord. So his mother is blessed. In fact, Eli prays over her, and she, her womb opens up now. And not only does she have this first son who she gave to the Lord, and by giving her son to the Lord, God does what? He multiplies it so that she winds up with five more children. Powerful statement about how important it is to make sure we give what we're supposed to give to God. Now, now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Mercy. These dudes were so terrible that instead of doing their priestly duty, they were messing with the women who served at the door of the tabernacle. It was confusion on top of confusion, mess on top of mess. And we talked last week about how at the door judgment would happen. But at the door is where grace was also found. When we look at it prophetically, we'll do a whole message on how you lay out the, the, the sanctuary prophetically. But when you look at it prophetically, when you look at the door, the door, if Jesus' uh, burial and resurrection is at the altar of Levar, the door represents the time when the church begins to look for the second coming. Right? When it begins to look forward. So we went through the, um, the, the, the current events last week. The fires in Siberia. The, the floods in Europe. The fires on the West Coast. Um, the pestilence of this pandemic that keeps evolving till you have almost every Greek letter now soon to be. Delta, Lama, Lambda, and Gamma are all on their way. We are living in a time of uncertainty. 
Well, what we thought was up is no longer up and the world is changing rapidly. When you get to the door, prophetically what you have to understand is it is where a judgment of the priest happens. It's where each one of us, as we move in Christ from simply being baptized and a member of the church, we move into priesthood, into service of our God. And as we serve, service with God is tied to the second coming. How do we know that? Because the scripture says in Matthew chapter 24, and this gospel shall be preached in all the world as a witness. And then what? And then shall the end come. It is our participation with God that brings this world to an end. Once everyone has had a chance to decide, Jesus will step out of his priestly duties in heaven, take off his priestly robes, put on his kingly robes, and ride a white horse back to earth to collect those of us who are his. It's at the door of the tabernacle that they committed the most vile acts with these women. I want to submit to you that Satan loves to use sex and intimacy to trip up the people of God. I hope you get this. When Balaam, when Balak, King Balak wanted to destroy Israel, he got Balaam to help him. When Balaam couldn't curse them, he told Balak to send in the prostitutes among the men of Israel. And that's how you would destroy them. And as they were on the verge of the promised land, it was sexual sin that caused Israel to begin to worship Baal Peor. It was sexual sin that caused them to not simply enter the promised land, but to wander around in the desert for 40 years. Why did they have to wander for 40 years? God now had to sanctify and purify the people. None of those that left Egypt as adults walked into the promised land except for two, Joshua and Caleb. Sexual sin is what will stymie your spiritual growth. It doesn't have to be this blazing. Sometimes it's what we watch, what we listen to. Satan understands how we're programmed and he tries to use it against us. And once the sons of Eli were caught up in sexual sin, it was very easy to manipulate the rest of them because you can't stand in the presence of a perfect God living such a treacherous life. First Samuel 2 and verse 23, and he said unto them, why do ye such things? This is Eli now talking to his sons. I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. So the people began to complain to Eli, like, you've got to bring your sons in check. First of all, your son's stealing the meat, threatening to beat us up and take it if we won't give it to him. And now they're sleeping with the women they're not supposed to be sleeping with. They're worse than the heathen priests. Verse 24, Eli speaks to his sons, Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to transgress. He says something profound here, Eli. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? 
Not, in other words, who is going to go to bat for him? Who is going to try and defend him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. In other words, they, their heart was hardened. We talked about in the Bible where it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. People say, you know, God was cruel. How could he harden Pharaoh's heart? When you have decided that you will not believe in Jehovah God, Every evidence given to you of his reality, of his mercy, of his grace, and of his justice, every time it's presented to you, your heart gets harder, not softer. God didn't harden Pharaoh's heart by doing something to him. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by showing himself to him. And that's the world we live in today. He said, but God would slay them. This reminds me of, of my grandmother, Olga Clark. And when she would find at times in my life that I was into foolishness, she would pull me aside. Dwayne probably remembers how she would do. She'd pull me aside and she would talk to me sternly about the mess that I was into, whatever it was. You've got to have someone in your life who will keep you accountable. Eli failed his sons, as you're going to see. But each of us needs people in our lives who will hold us accountable. Now, here's the interesting. The scripture says here, and the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. Samuel was raised by the same Eli, but Samuel, Eli was able to raise to do right. Now, Samuel, the spirit of prophecy tells us, had a mind to do right. Eli couldn't raise his own sons. He couldn't save his own sons, but he could save somebody else's. As men especially, we have to be very careful. We make sure that we invest in our homes. Because Samuel was the one, as you will see, who God was going to turn everything over to. And it is at this point that we enter into the majestic. You see, Eli's sons lost their uh, right to be priests in the tabernacle. They lost their right. And so when we look at the tabernacle, I want to do an explanation of it uh, to make the point of just how majestic this place was. When you look at it, it was about 45 feet long and it was about uh, about 10 cubits or 15 feet wide. This was a perfect square here and two-thirds of the sanctuary, tabernacle, I should say, because all of this is the sanctuary, two-thirds of the tabernacle was the holy place, right? Here's what's deep about that. That means that one-third of the tabernacle is the most holy place. And the most holy place is a perfect cube. It is as tall as it is wide as it is high. And the one of the only, the only other structure I, off the top of my head I can think of that has that same kind of dimension is what? It's the city, the New Jerusalem. Perfect cube. The most holy place was to be on earth a reminder of what is in heaven. Now, the tabernacle proper was 45 feet long, 15 wide, divided into two rooms. Um, and here's where you see the Holy of Holies was 15 by 15 by 15. So it was a perfect cube. Um, there were 48 boards. I was going to get into the boards, but it gets long. The 48 boards, each of the boards were 10 cubits long. And a cubit and a half abroad and 20 boards. For the, uh, for the south side, 20 for the north side and six board and two corner boards for the west side. Now, the boards stood upright side by side over the top were four coverings. 
and the tabernacle itself faced east towards the tribe of Judah. The wood was made of acacia wood. And the reason it was acacia wood, acacia wood has two properties. It was light, so it was easier for them to take apart the sanctuary and the tabernacle and carry it. But it also was one of the most resistant woods to rot and infestation by insects. And you can see a picture of it here. To give you an example of the posts and how profoundly different they are, this is the post to the gate that you come into. And remember, it was seven and a half feet tall, so the average man... In fact, very few people would be able to look over into the sanctuary from the outside. But look at the holy place where the door was. It was much taller. And of course, the most holy place where the veil hung, it was, it was just as tall. So you get an idea of when you step into the courtyard, you would see the giant, um, all brazen altar, but then you'd look beyond it and see this huge a structure, the tabernacle sitting there where only the priests could go in and out of. Now, what I found interesting is that when you walk into the tabernacle, everything is covered in gold. And we talked about the gold. The gold was beaten. It was purified and beaten. And it represents the pure character of Christ and the fact that he was beaten for each one of us. In fact, the Bible says it is by his stripes that we are healed. The imagery gets powerful here. So when you stepped into the majestic, into the holy place, when you stepped into it, the walls were solid gold. Oh, y'all missing this thing. All the furniture was gold. We'll talk about the furniture. When you looked up, we'll get into that. It was incredible. And the only light inside came from the candlesticks. So when you stepped into the majestic, it was a completely different experience than the bleeding sheep. And the noise of the animals on the outside, the blazing hot sun, when you stepped inside, it was like you left where you were and stepped into the presence of God. It was an honor and a privilege for Eli's sons to have treated such a privilege the way they did was was an affront to the God of heaven. But here's where it gets crazy. Each one of us has been invited into the majestic. How have we behaved as those who are to be priests in the house of the living God? What's interesting about when you step into the tabernacle is that everything is gold. Now, here, look, so you see it's all bronze out here in the courtyard. Everything is bronze. Bronze represents justice. We talked about it. It represents the flesh of man, our humanity. When you get to the door to enter the tabernacle, right, where the, 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 the beams sit, are their bronze, but when you get in deep in, it goes from bronze to silver. And I said, why would it change from bronze to silver? In fact, in ancient days, silver was often harder to come by than gold, which is why in some Bible verses, silver is red before gold is red. And silver is often what we, when you read the Bible, is often what is turned into coins. All through the Bible, silver was incredibly valuable. Silver is used because silver represents redemption. Silver is tried in fire and purified. It is rare. And so it is what the gold sits in. It represents our coupling with Christ. 
the connection we are to have as we are sanctified. There were 20 boards. I, I, I talked about this. Each board was set on two sockets of silver. So we have 90 sockets of silver plus four sockets of silver. Um, and so at the final analysis, there are a perfect 100 sockets that sat that you would drop. It's like Legos. Legos long before Legos. And you would, you could drop the board in and it would, it would lock into place. Then there were beams. I don't know if I get into the beams, but there are beams that would go through the wood to hold it in place. Five on each, five on each side, 15 total. And the number 15 has all these incredible meanings as well. So that it would stand and it would be strong all by itself. It was incredibly well engineered and designed. And you can see when you look at it from the inside, the base would be silver all the way around, gold on the walls. Can you imagine when the when the candlelight flickered inside and it shone and all that gold? Man. Majestic. Silver represents redemption. Hosea, if you want, go and read Hosea 3, 1 through 5. When Hosea went to get his wife back, who had sold herself into prostitution, one of the most, one of the most, Fascinating and deep Bible stories. It was 15, remember the number 15 has relevance. Pieces of silver were paid by Hosea for the deliverance of the woman who represents the nation of Israel. It was silver. Silver represents that you have been redeemed. That's why it's all along the base in the tabernacle. Because each one of us has been redeemed. You know what? I'm a Christian because other religions, I have to work my way into salvation. Christianity is unique. Christianity says, nope, you have sinned. You have failed. Even your righteousness is as filthy rags. And as we talked about last week, what Christ does for us is that he takes his righteousness and does what? Gives it to us. Covers us in it. The Christian can fall on, 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 at the feet of the, at the foot of the cross, cry out to Jesus, and as long as we believe, we are justified. The altar. As we begin to believe, we are washed. The laver. But as we are sanctified, Christ does it all. Even the process of purifying. This is why the Scripture says that He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the author. He writes our faith. In fact, the Bible says he writes in Revelation 22, he will write his name in your forehead. Why is his name written in your forehead? Because the name in the Bible represents character. And the frontal lobe of your brain is where your character sits. The process of redemption and sanctification that we're talking about, the process that Samuel went through, but Eli's sons did not, is a process that says, as you go through life and its trials, you are to be purified. You're supposed to live differently, choose differently. That's how valuable the tabernacle was. The most recent study, and this is an old study I, I took, the most recent study of Hebrew weights, um, done by Peake's commentary of the Bible, reckons the talent at about 64 pounds and the sanctuary shekel, a third of an ounce or 9.7 grams. According to this calculation, there would be in the, in the sanctuary itself, 1900 pounds of gold, 6,437 pounds of silver 
and 4,522 pounds of bronze. Because some things were made from solid silver and solid bronze, so they, they, they would weigh more. That's how valuable it was. God was speaking to us about the value he, he has placed upon each one of us. You are infinitely valuable to God. I was talking to um, one, of the pa- one of my patients this week, and she was, she was going through some stuff. She was, she, was a, she was a teenager. Her mom was in the room. Um, had gone through some bullying at school and doubted herself and was starting to get into some trouble. And we're busy right now trying to see patients. And, but it's like God just said, no, take a little while. This poor little girl no longer believed she was beautiful, smart, or worthwhile. It broke my heart. The bullying that she had gone through had made her come to a place where this little girl thought she was of no value. I was so glad to be able to tell her she's priceless. So glad to tell her that in the eyes of the living God, she is without measure. Her mother said, please keep telling her, keep telling her. And I told her, I told this young girl, I said, you're going to do great things. Greatness is in you. That's part of the reason you're getting all of this negative attention. Little girl smiled behind her mask. And when she left, she was so happy and she waved to me. We live in a world that wants to tell you that you have no value. If you had no value, Christ, who angels constantly adored and worshipped, would not have left his throne in glory to come to earth, wrapped in the flesh of a baby in, uh, uh, in a manger in Bethlehem. He would not have gone through the torture that he went through during his passion as he went to the cross. He would not have endured the cross, died, and raised again. He would have gone through none of that if you were worthless. The tabernacle is telling you that you're priceless. So you can see the boards, and it shows you how the boards were. They, they clicked into place. You see that? It's pretty fascinating engineering. I won't get too deep into it. And how the 15, num- you get the number 15 all the way around, how the boards were put inside. And what I found almost most fascinating is how the whole thing was covered. That was pretty incredible because the inner w- uh, lining um, that covered here, a fine linen, with, it had they, 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 they embroidered it so that when you looked up all that gold, all that light, when you looked up, there were the, the images of angels above you. And in front of you, as you looked at the veil, there were images of angels there. It was a, it's a replica because if we went into the, into the holy place in the sanctuary in heaven, it would be full of angels. It was a statement that angels are always watching. Powerful. And of course, beyond that, of course, there's the goat here. On the second layer, then there's this one, which is the ramskin dyed red, which represents Christ, his blood, and his, and the fact that he covers all of us. The out, the most outer layer is interesting because in the Bible it describes it as badgers, in the King James as badger skin, but there are others who say it was probably more of an aquatic animal like a, like a manatee or something. Won't get into the argument of it, but whatever this was, it was weatherproof and it was, and it was ugly. If you step into the tabernacle, you saw its beauty, a priceless beauty. But if you were some, you know, nomad just going by, you'd look over and say, man, they've got the ugliest tent. Why are them people hanging out around that ugly tent? 
To the world, Christianity is unattractive. To the world, Christ is not something you would want. But to those who have tabernacled with him, those who have stepped into the majestic, he is wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Go back to our story. First Samuel chapter three, verse one. And the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. The word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. So we looked at the tabernacle. This is where, um, Samuel was going to be, is going to be ministering. And it came to pass at that time when Eli was laid down in his place and his eyes began to wax dim and that he could not see. He was going blind. And ere the lamp of God went out in the temple. This is how messed they were not taking care of the temple so that the light went out in the temple. And the Lord, where the ark of God was, and Samuel was laid down to sleep. He was sleeping when the light was supposed to be on. But the Lord called Samuel and he answered, here am I. One of the favorite children's story you hear. Little Samuel is sleeping and he keeps getting called by God. He gets up three times. Runs over to Eli the first two times. And on the third time, Eli says, the next time, and I think I may have that scripture here, and the Lord, uh, the third time, Eli says, the next time he calls says, speak, Lord, here am I. And Samuel, as a boy, is given the prophecy about the fate of Eli's family and his sons. The Lord came and stood and called as a, at other times. Samuel, Samuel, then Samuel answered, speak for thy servant heareth. And the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which both the ears of everyone that heareth it shall tingle. And in that day, I will perform against Eli all things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I will also make an end for I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows because his sons made themselves vile. Look at this. And he did what? And he restrained them not. Powerful. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offering forever. And Samuel lay until the morning and opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he answered, here am I. And he said, what is the thing that the Lord hath said unto thee? I pray, I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to thee and more also. If you hide anything from me of all the things that he said to you. And Samuel told him everything. Hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. This is what Eli says. It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him good. And here's verse 19. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and, and did let none of his words do what? Fall unto the ground. Samuel was so chosen. That his words worked every time. He was a sure prophet. It's Samuel who chose um, Saul. It's Samuel who anoints David. Samuel goes on to do powerful things. And let me tell you, Samuel isn't just a priest. Samuel goes on to be priest, prophet, and judge. Verse 20, and all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew what Samuel, that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. 
And the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself in Sam, to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God began to speak to his people again because of Samuel. When you bring this home, we're each supposed to be like and function like Samuel did. We're each supposed to be able to handle God's word, to share God's word, to work in God's favor and uh, work for God uh, as he favors us to be able to work for him. We are each supposed to enter the majestic. But in order to do that, one of the big points of that story and even of entering into the tabernacle is you've got to leave the world behind. You can't stay in the world and at the same time go in among God. Just won't work. At some point, you've got to make a decision that you are going to serve God. You've got to look at what Christ has done for you in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection and the fact that He even now he is atoning for our sins. You've got to look at what he's done and you've got to decide, uh, as Joshua said, choose you this day who you will serve. You got to make a decision. Do you enter the majestic or do you go back out the gate the way you came in? At some point, we each have to decide. We've each got to make up our minds. And let me tell you something. I was on a, I was on a, a Sabbath school with men for the men's ministry in, um, for one of the churches in Washington, D.C. this morning. And we were talking about this, how Peter, Jesus came to Peter and said, Peter, listen, I prayed for you because Satan has desired. He wants to sift you like wheat. I want to submit to you that each one of us, Satan wants to sift. Each one of us he wants to destroy. And what he does is he bathes us in the misinformation of the day. So we're made to believe lies. We have to come out of it. This is what he, this is what um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? There's that word again. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? The scripture says, in fact, you get to choose. Either you in concordance with Christ, either you're in agreement with Christ, or like Eli's sons where the Bible says that they were servants of Belial, you can still today choose to be Belial's servant. Let me tell you something. I remember when I stood at my mother's grave. I remember being in that cemetery in Miami, standing at my mother's grave. How deep the hole was. How white the coffin was. The finality of being separated from my mother. My mother was everything to me. My father was never around. Didn't really even know the man until I was much older. I didn't know how I would even make it at that point. And as I, 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 I realized, I've told you the story before in the hospital room at Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Miami, when I walked and saw my mother after the chemotherapy and after she had been so devastated by the cancer, the multiple myeloma, which had riddled her body with broken bones and the chemo had come in, the last thing they prescribed her was arsenic. Seeing my mother uh, emaciated and bald, and I, I walked in, I was angry with God. How could God allow my mother, who was such a faithful servant, to be in this predicament now? 
remember going into the bathroom of her hospital room, the hospital where she was an administrator, by the way, falling on my knees, crying out to God, how could you? God whispering in my ears, she has been perfected. This process of sanctification I keep talking about. God said, listen, what she went through was all she needed to go through. She can sleep. And as I stood at the graveside, looking in that hole where much of my family is buried, looking in that hole, agonizing with God, I remember the prayer I prayed. I said, Lord God, mark this spot. Let your angels mark this very site. Because when you come again, Lord, I expect that Carmen will come out of the ground. That day I made a choice. I will forever follow God. There's no other way. What does Belial have to offer you? What does this world have to offer you? The scripture tells me that even uh, the elements are going to melt with fervent heat. All the Olympic medals that were just given out, all the pride and prestige will one day melt. You choose now for eternity. Every moment of every day, we are either choosing Belial or choosing Christ. Either choosing to be like the sons of Eli or like Samuel. Either choosing to go into the tabernacle, into the majestic, or to stay in the courtyard and drift out the gate. I saw some of the things I've seen in my life. I've come to the final conclusion that this earth is not worth the effort most of us put into it. This is why the scripture says, come out of her. Because a lot of what we've invested in this world in the final analysis, never, another one, my cousin Sean Taylor played for the Reds. I told you that story before. I'll never forget at his funeral. There was no giant U-Haul carrying his BMW in his boat. There was no, there was no, all the riches, none of it mattered. What matters Was that when you have to come face to face with eternity that you have made the decision to enter the majestic. You've made the decision to be a partner with the living God. You've made the decision to be redeemed as the silver says all the way around the base of the tabernacle. You have chosen redemption. Chosen salvation. That's why the scripture goes on. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Why does Paul say this? Because you are the temple of the living God. 
As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And here, one of the great lessons of the sanctuary is, is exposed in 2 Corinthians 6.16 that yes, in the ancient times, there was this sanctuary built where God came and tabernacled but today, God tabernacles in the heart of the people who are His. All the effort that was put into building that sanctuary Understand every every bit of it is to let you understand the extent to which God is going to save you. Second Corinthians 6 and verse 17, wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will do what? And I will receive you. And I love this verse. I didn't do this in the scripture reading, but I like verse 18. Verse 18 says, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. You get adopted into the family of God. You get adopted into the family of God. Spirit of Prophecy says this, the youth may have principles so firm that the most powerful temptations of Satan will not draw them away from their allegiance. Samuel was a child surrounded by the most corrupting influences. He saw and heard things that grieved his soul. The sons of Eli, who ministered in holy office, were controlled by Satan. These men polluted the whole atmosphere which surrounded them. Men and women were daily fascinated with sin and wrong. Yet Samuel walked untainted. His robes of character were spotless. He did not fellowship or have the least delight in the sins which filled all Israel with fearful reports. Samuel loved God. He kept his soul in such close connection with heaven that an angel was sent to talk with him in reference to the sins of Eli's sons, which were corrupting Israel. Councils to the Church, page 109. Let me tell you something. I want to be like Samuel. I want to be someone God can trust with his message. Someone who is untainted by the things going on around him. This world, it's like every week it gets filthier and filthier. I had a patient this week tell me, Doc, I don't watch the news. I said, you don't watch the news? She said, no, I don't watch the news. Every time I turn it on, somebody got killed, stolen, kidnapped, beat up. She said, I can't take it. My nerves can't take it, doctor. The world has become sick. While they say they've reached this great level of understanding and, and progress, you watch the world is deteriorating into filth. Come out and be separate. Step into the majestic. Spirit of Prophecy, Adventist homepage 4-3. Who can know in the moment of temptation the terrible consequences which result from one wrong? hasty step. Our only safety is to be shielded by the grace of God every moment and not put our own spiritual eyesight and not put out our own spiritual eyesight so that we will call evil good and good evil. 
Without hesitation or argument, we must, we must close and guard the avenues of the soul against evil. That was the prerequisite for going into the tabernacle. And each one of us has been called as priests to enter that tabernacle. Because Peter says it like this, the same Peter, 2 Peter 2, but ye are ch- and verse 9, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let me tell you something, church. You have obtained mercy. You absolutely have obtained mercy. The question is, are you going to receive it? Real quick, the last story of the day I was thinking of this week. It was interesting. Twain showed up. We were giving everybody happy birthdays. A lot of our family born in August on our family chat on WhatsApp this week. The picture there is the picture that we use for that Clark chat group is my, my grandfather and my grandmother. Bethletown, Jamaica is where they're from. My grandmother tried so hard all our lives to lead all of us to know God. But interestingly, my, my grandfather tried to have the exact opposite effect. So as my grandmother would sing songs to us and teach us the Bible and expect us to study our Sabbath school lesson and go to church, my grandfather would drink rum, smoke a pipe, even offer us the pipe. When he'd come to pick up my grandmother who didn't do well driving from church in his long baby blue Cadillac, he'd be bumping Michael Jackson, Billy Jean as he pulled up to the church. He was constantly annoying my poor grandmother about her beliefs and so forth. He respected the Sabbath, but he expected his food to be cooked. He'd still watch his television. He'd still go to work on the Sabbath. And I always wondered how my grandmother even put up with him at times. He seemed like the heathen's heathen. If he got upset, and blew his top. He, he watch out. That man was no joke. He had a, he had something he used to beat with. I never got a beating with it, but it was a piece of rubber that he called the rock steady. We called it the rock steady actually, because when he hit you with it, you would rock steady. But my grandmother was patient with him. I remember being in at our house in Bloomfield. When my mother got the call that my grandfather, after having already had a heart attack, had now had a stroke, or vice versa. He had one first and then he had the other one. But whatever he had second was so devastating that the doctors were calling and told my aunts in Florida to call and tell my mother to get to Florida because if she wanted to say goodbye to her father, she needed to get there in the next few days. We jumped on, this is how long ago it was, Eastern Airlines. Flew to Miami, and we didn't even go where we were staying. We went straight to South Miami. He was, staying, he was at the South Miami Hospital. My Uncle George lived in South Miami, and we went straight to his house. 
where everyone had gathered because we weren't, you know, that big of a crowd wasn't allowed in the hospital. My grandmother made us all line up from the youngest to the oldest. And everyone had to pray for my grandfather's recovery. Some of them were so young they could barely pray, but they were required to pray. Before the prayer chain went all the way around, the phone rang. It was the hospital. The doctor on the phone couldn't explain it. I was just a child, but I remember the shock in whoever it was. I think it was Mount Doreen who answered the phone. That we needed to get to the hospital because something has happened and Papa had made this incredible recovery. When we got there, he was sitting up, smiling and making jokes like he always did. What was most miraculous wasn't his recovery. It was that when he got out, he went to church with my grandmother. Y'all missing this thing. And it happened to be when they were doing some evangelism in the Florida City Church. My grandfather sat through the evangelism and was baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Spent the last seven years of his life a more, he became a more strict Adventist. He was as good Adventist as he was a heathen. Let me say it that way. I want you to get this, church. God never gives up on anyone. That's what the sanctuary teaches us. No one has gone so far from God that God has given up on them. Eli's sons could have been redeemed if Eli had been brave enough to call out his son's sin and and, and relieve them of their priestly duties and work on their relationship with God. Judas could have been saved. Had Judas gone back to God as Peter wound up being saved and going back to God. No one has gone so far that God's love can't reach them. No one. You simply have not outsinned God's ability to save you. But here's the thing. Like Samuel's mother and father did, and like Samuel followed suit, you must surrender all. You've got to raise the right white flag. I'm going to ask my wife to come up and just sing this song. It's a song of appeal. I've learned, and in the Christian walk, we must sacrifice everything for him. Surrender all and enter the majestic. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.